Well, I am very excited uh, today. Just about every Sunday, I think to myself, despite all the stress of having to write a sermon and even sometimes on Sunday morning, by the time I get in my car, I still go, today is going to be a good day. It's the Lord's Day, there's church, you're going to see the people of God. Well, today is going to be an especially good day and for several reasons. First of all, if you remember, I, I said last week, I had been looking forward to preaching on this passage uh, specifically in Leviticus for a couple months now. Back when we were studying the book of Exodus, uh, I knew I wanted to read ahead in Leviticus and just kind of familiarize myself with it before we got there. And so every day for a week, I would kind of just, or for uh, every day, I would read a chapter and kind of work myself through it. And when I came upon this passage, um, I was truly taken with it. And I knew of all the passages in Leviticus I want to preach on, I really want to preach on Leviticus 14. Um, I'm sure I had read it before, but I had never uh, been so struck before, particularly with the symbolism of the two birds uh, and how this is just a beautiful picture um, of salvation and the washing of our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ and a beautiful picture of baptism as well. Uh, and so I, all I needed was an excuse to preach on this text, and so I've been very excited. The second reason, perhaps the bigger reason, the real reason why you guys, a lot of you came here, you didn't come because you're like, oh, he's preaching on that text, is because today is Dominic's baptism, right? Um, that is always a good day. Uh, we read uh, the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, that's true in churches too. It's true especially when it's a younger person um, whose parents uh, have been training them in the ways of the Lord and discipling them. When they finally come to faith, there is a lot of joy in the churches. Um, and so today is going to be a very, very good day. Well, today in our sermon, I decided to continue studying in the book of Leviticus. I knew I wanted to preach on baptism uh, for this day, um, but I figured I would probably preach uh, something from the New Testament on baptism. But then I looked over this passage again, and I saw there's so many ways that this connects to Christ and to baptism, uh, and that was all the excuse I needed to preach on this text. Uh, but in all seriousness, there, there's so much for baptism. Um, there are so many ways that we see the meaning uh, of baptism throughout this text that we will consider so that when we actually see the baptism, it's so much more enriched by what we read of here today. Now, if you've never read through the book of Leviticus, uh, perhaps uh, you're reading through this passage and you go, what the heck is this guy talking about? Is, is somebody's killing birds and putting people, birds in bird blood? What's going on, right? Um, well, Today, we're reading from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is one of the oldest books of the Bible. It's the third of all the books of the Bible. And in it, God gives his ancient people of Israel, he gives them what theologians call the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. Because the book was written so long ago, and because it's so full of of symbolism, the book can often be very difficult for people to read, even for Christians who have read through the Bible several times themselves. However, if you understand the main point of the book, 
Leviticus is actually quite simple. The ceremonial law with all of its mysterious symbolism and ceremony at the end of the day was simply given by God to teach us invaluable truths about himself, his holy nature, his purity, man's sinfulness, the great need for blood to atone for man's sins that God might dwell with man. And ultimately, it all points us to redemption in Jesus Christ. We could simplify it even more and say Jesus is simply the point of the book of Leviticus. As the author of Hebrews says, the ceremonial law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Just as when you look at a shadow on the ground, it points to a person, but it is not that person itself. So also when we look at all these mysterious laws, they point like a shadow to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to redeem us back to God. You might even think, this passage is about leprosy. How does that teach us about Jesus? How does that teach us about baptism? And yet, according to Christ himself, he is the point of all Scripture. He said to the Jews of his own day, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness of me. All of Scripture points to Christ, and if we keep that in mind, we will be able to understand a great deal about our passage. With that being said, what I want us to do today is to consider this passage in three different ways. First, we want to ask, what did all of this mean immediately to the ancient Israelites? What was the leper who had been healed, who went through this ceremonial cleansing, what was he supposed to understand and take away from all the symbolism happening? That's the first thing we want to ask. Secondly, we want to ask, how does all of this ceremony point to Christ? If Christ is the point of all of this, in what way uh, does he fulfill all this? And then lastly, we'll ask, in what way is all of this a picture of baptism? How does it point to baptism? Okay. Well, first, let's ask, what did this ceremony mean immediately to the ancient Israelites? Let's begin in verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person, or the leper, for the day of his cleansing. Chapter 14 of Leviticus outlines the process that was necessary for the ceremonial cleansing of a leper who had been healed. Under the law, lepers were kind of the epitome, the ultimate picture of ceremonial uncleanness. There were different degrees of uncleanness under the law, there were different kinds of ways in which a person might become clean or unclean. And in fact, uncleanness was just kind of a fact of life for an Israelite living under the ceremonial law. Every Israelite, one way or another, would become unclean. However, the leper was the ultimate picture of uncleanness ceremonially. This was not because... Um, Lepers are more sinful than other people. It's not because God was necessarily punishing them with the disease, but rather it's because uncleanness is a picture of moral uncleanness. 
diseases and all that is a picture of what happens to the soul by sin. This was not meant so that we would look down or that the ancient Israelites would look down and, and think themselves better than the leper. Rather, they were to look in them and go, that's a picture of what sin has done to my own soul. In this context, pick, um, uh, the reason why leprosy was the epitome of uncleanness is probably for several reasons. On the one hand, it is a contagious disease. Now, thankfully, it's not all that contagious if you really consider it today, and it's, it's very much cured today. Um, leprosy is quickly, thankfully, becoming a thing of the past, but like other contagious things under the law, it too will make you unclean. Furthermore, it's the epitome of uncleanness because of what it does to you if you had it. There's, there's ways in which, under the law, if you touch something that is dead, if you touch a dead animal, if you touch something that is rotting or decaying, that would make you unclean. But in many ways, that's just kind of the state of what a leper is. In many ways, it was kind of a living and rotting death. Leprosy was one of the most feared things that, you could, that could happen to you in the ancient world. It was often very disfiguring to you, to your face and your body. It affects the skin. It causes painful growths on you. It can cause your hair to fall out. It affects the body's ability to sweat, which makes the skin dry and crack and susceptible to further infections. Lepers were often covered in infected sores and ulcers all over their body, which cause a very, very offensive odor. Leprosy affects the nervous system. Many lepers were blind. They lost their sight. About half of them lost their sense of smell. A lot of times, if you see pictures of lepers, they don't really have their fingers or at least just kind of the nubs or, or the, the nubs on their feet. The reason is not because those fall off if you have leprosy, but because leprosy affects your nervous system, those parts of your body can go numb. And so a leper might stub their toe in a minor injury, but actually it could become infected and then it would have to fall off. In many ways, we could say that the leper themselves was in a state of decay. It was kind of a state of living death. And for all these reasons, they were the epitome of ceremonial uncleanness. In fact, in Leviticus 13, it tells us, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. If you walked down the street and the leper was coming and they saw you, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. No one else had to do that under the ceremonial law. Furthermore, sadly, because of their uncleanness, they had to live outside of the camp of Israel. Not only because they risked infecting others with their disease, but more importantly, because as we've seen, ceremonial uncleanness defiled the temple of God. And so it has to be put outside. Chapter 13 continues, The leper shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so sadly, 
for someone to whom this, this was their fate, by virtue of their uncleanness, they were not only separated from God in a sense, not, not able to live and go to the temple and offer sacrifices, but they were also separated from the people of God as well, their friends and their family. And so it's understandable why this would be one of the most uh, terrifying things that could happen to you in the ancient world. There was a lot of stigma and fear about lepers. Perhaps the closest thing we can think to to that is, is all the fear of AIDS in the early 90s. There were many sad accounts of uh, kids who had simply contracted AIDS through blood transfusions. Uh, there were several famous cases at the time, and people didn't want them going to school with their other kids. They would protest outside of the school because they were so afraid of it. And in many ways, that was the same fear that it had uh, that, that there were of lepers in the ancient world. And yet here we must consider God's purpose in making leprosy the epitome of uncleanness under the ceremonial law. It might seem to us as cruel, as someone who has such a sad fate, who's cut off from God and, and, and cut off from their own family, that God should do them the insult of calling them unclean. However, God's purpose in all this is namely that leprosy is such a fitting metaphor and picture of what sin has done to mankind. God's point to all the ancient Israelites and to us today was not to look down on lepers, not to think of ourselves better than them, but rather to see ourselves in them, to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's a picture of me inwardly, spiritually, and morally, like leprosy, sin causes disfigurement, not of the body, but of the soul. Sin causes a blindness of the heart so that we can't perceive or understand or believe spiritual things. Sin causes a numbness and a deadening of the conscience. Like an infectious disease, sin is spread from person to person, passed down from parent to child, one generation to the next, all the way back to Adam. Sin separates us from God. We cannot draw near to Him because of our sin. We are effectively put out of the camp. This is why as soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were put out of it. They're put out of God's presence because of their sin. Furthermore, sin also brings separation from people as well. It divides. It breeds hatred instead of love jealousy, and cold-heartedness. And last of all, sin, like leprosy, is according to Scripture a kind of living death. All of humanity after the fall is born in a state of spiritual death. Not meaning that they don't have souls or that their souls don't have life, but rather their souls are corrupted and twisted by sin. They're enemies of God, rebelling against Him. The Apostle Paul said to the church of the Ephesians, speaking of the time before their conversion, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And sadly, last of all, even though leprosy was a kind of living death, it ultimately brought actual death. 
Leprosy itself doesn't actually kill you. It's complications uh, from leprosy. It's further infections, and eventually these all add up, and they would catch up to you and bring actual death. So it is with the living death of sin. Eventually, people pass from this life, and they go to what Scripture calls the second death, or hell. It, too, is a kind of living, permanent, perpetual death for all eternity, tormented in hell. And so while on the one hand it might seem cruel to us that God would (laughs) declare these sad, diseased people unclean, it is ultimately to convey to us the massive truth that we ourselves are born in the state of sin. If we don't repent and believe in the Son that He sent to cleanse us from our sins, just like lepers, and will suffer the same fate. Well, getting back to the text, it says in verse 2, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Really, the purpose of this text is to give instructions for what to do when a leper had been healed. They were healed, but they still needed to be ceremonially cleansed. Now, there was no cure for leprosy back then, This could be talking about some kind of miraculous healing of a leper. It's also true that the word for leprosy in Hebrew is not so precise as to only refer to um, what we call leprosy, which is known medically as Hansen's disease. Um, That term for leprosy in Hebrew kind of covered a whole host of like contagious skin diseases. And in the case that one of those cleared up, this is how they were ceremonially cleansed. It says at the end of verse 2, He, the leper, shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live, clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. So the priest would go, inspect the man, and if he is healed the process of cleansing ceremonially could begin. Overall, this passage uh, in verses 1 through 20 covers the whole ceremony, and it has three distinct phases. In the first phase, of which we've just read, the priest would take two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. Now, we'll see the meaning of the birds in just a second, But as far as cedarwood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, these were often used together under the ceremonial law for basically sprinkling blood on something. Sprinkling blood is how you cleanse something under the ceremonial law. And what they would do is take a little stick of cedar, and then you would get hyssop. Hyssop essentially looks like lavender. It almost looks identical. The the little flowers on it are purple, and it just looks like a lavender plant. And they would take one of those put it on the stick, and then bind it together with a scarlet yarn and dip that in blood, and then they would sprinkle it on things. As far as why these things are used, what's the meaning of them all? There are several different interpretations, but I think it is most likely because they all form a picture of cleanness under the law. For example, cedar wood is a very durable kind of wood. It's uh, very good to use on things that are going to be outside. Um, cedar has a, it naturally repels bugs and insects. 
Um, it, it is naturally resistant to rot and decay. And so in that sense, it's kind of the opposite of a leper. It's, it's not decaying, it's, it's clean. Hyssop was believed to have antiseptic properties in the ancient world. It was used medicinally, and people would often clean things and scrub them with hyssop. So it too is a picture of cleanness. And then lastly, the scarlet yarn most likely represents the blood itself of sacrifices, which cleansed and washed away sin and uncleanness. Next, we're told in verse 5, And the priest shall command them, his assistants, to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. So the priest and his assistants would essentially have a pot, a clay pot of fresh water. He would kill the first bird over the pot so that the blood mixes in with the water. He would then take the second bird and dip it in the water and the blood and then release it. And lastly, he takes the hyssop and all that, dips that in the blood and sprinkles it on the man seven times. As far as the symbolism of all this, I think in many ways it's fairly straightforward. The first bird is killed over the water so that the water and the blood mix together. This has the effect of making the water and the blood kind of one and the same thing, and the purpose is to show that just as water washes away dirt, so also blood washes away the uncleanness of sin. Secondly, the second bird is dipped into the water and the blood of the first bird, on the one hand, symbolizing the leper himself, his own cleansing from the uncleanness of leprosy. The second bird is cleansed, as it were, and he is released. He's free to go wherever he wishes, most likely symbolizing that the leper is now free to enter back into the camp. One commentator, Patrick Fairburn, says, the recovered leper saw represented in the bird's release to fly wherever it pleased among the other birds his own liberty to enter into the society of living men. On the other hand, all of this reminded the leper that it was only by the death of another, the shedding of blood, that he could be cleansed from his uncleanness. But more than that, it points to the great truth of which the author of Hebrews speaks, namely that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, with that, he is pronounced clean, at least partly. And the first of three steps has now been complete, and the second stage would begin immediately after that. It says in verse 8, And he who is to be clean shall wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. We're not going to shave Dominic's head today, so he can relax. We're not going to do any of that. Again, just as the second bird was dipped and cleansed, so now the leper is dipped and cleansed in water. He also washes his clothes. He shaves off all of his hair. 
we read in verse 9 that this was all the hair of the head. It was his hair, his eyebrows, his beard. On the one hand, this was a very practical, precautionary measure. It made sure that all of the skin was washed and cleansed. But on the other hand, it probably symbolizes the washing and shaving away, as it were, of the uncleanness itself. Verse 8 continues, And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. Now, when it says he has to live outside his tent seven days, it's probably referring to the tent or tents where his family lived. So he's free to come back into the camp of Israel, and yet he cannot yet visit his family. There's kind of this uh, week-long probationary phase, if you will. Most likely, this is to make sure that the disease is truly healed. It may also be to reacclimate him back to society, or maybe to reacclimate society back to him. Again, there was a lot of fear of lepers, and this allowed people to see him for a week and say, okay, he is cleansed. I'll give him a hug now, right? He's, he's okay. Probably the main reason why, though, is because he's not fully clean yet, not until he offers sacrifices at the tabernacle of God in the third stage. Before that happens, he is not fully reconciled back to God, and so it makes sense that that must happen first before he can also be fully reconciled and reintegrated into the people of God. Verse 9 says, And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair. He shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. Again, one more washing for all the same reasons. Well, with that, he's almost done. His time of uncleanness has almost come to an end. It's time for the third and final phase of the cleansing process, which would actually take place in the court of the temple itself. We read in verse 10, And on the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, and one log of oil. A log is a term of measurement. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed in these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy." This third phase begins with a series of four sacrifices in total. The first sacrifice is what is called a guilt offering under the law. A guilt offering, as we've seen in our study, was to be offered particularly for violating God's holiness. We've seen in other ways, leprosy itself was often a picture of profaneness, profaning God's holiness. And it was in many cases in the Old Testament, um, not for everyone, but in some cases, an actual punishment that God gave people for violating his holiness. Some have suggested that the leper violated God's holiness by virtue of being exiled out of the camp and not giving to God the proper sacrifices that were due to him. 
So God's holiness has been violated. Verse 14 continues, the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering, and the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Now this whole part of the ceremony it's actually very unique in several respects. First and foremost, it's very reminiscent of how priests were ordained to serve in the tabernacle. We read way back in Exodus when Moses ordained and consecrated priests to serve in the presence of God, he took some of the blood of the ram of ordination and put it on their Okay, yeah, their right the uh, lobe of their right ear, their thumb on their right hand and their big toe on their right foot. If you remember, I said that the purpose of that was most likely because people, were, people are still right-handed today, and it was the dominant side of most people. By putting blood on the head, the middle, and the bottom of man, it symbolized the whole man being cleansed and consecrated to God. Here, the process is repeated, this time with oil, and that was not done for priests. They were anointed, but it was not put on their ear, their thumb, and their toe. I think what all of this probably points to is that because the leper is now back in the community of the people of God, he can now serve God in a way that he has not been able to because he's been outside the camp. In many ways, he is recommissioned. He is ordained to serve God as the average Israelite was. Well, lastly, we come to the end of this process. In verse 18, it says, Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. Here, the last three sacrifices are given. The sin offering, which atones for sin and cleanses uncleanness. And then last and finally, the burnt offering and the grain offering, which are meant to express gratitude and thanksgiving to God for cleansing him and healing him of his uncleanness. And with this, the man was no longer a leper. That is a part of his life that is gone. He is now fully reconciled back to God. He could go and visit his family Perhaps his family was waiting outside. They would embrace him as soon as he came back. He could come, and that long nightmare that he had lived was now over. But with that, what we want to consider now is what all of this shows us about Christ and redemption in his blood. If leprosy is a picture of the guilt and corruption of our sin then what does this ceremony show us about the work of Christ to cleanse us and forgive us from sin? The answer is, it shows us a lot. 
Christ is all over this passage. Perhaps as you've been reading, you've been making certain connections and thinking through that along the way. For example, we see Christ in the high priest who leaves behind the camp to go to the leper who cannot come to him. So also Christ left behind heaven. He took on flesh and came to seek and save lost sinners. John Gill says of the high priest here, so also Christ goes forth in search of lost sinners. He looks for them and finds them and brings them back home. We see Christ, of course, in the case of the first, uh, first bird who shed his own blood that the other might be cleansed and freed. In the case of the second bird, we see ourselves. We are, by faith, washed in the blood of Christ. In effect, his death becomes our own so that our old sinful selves are dead and buried with Christ. As Paul told the Colossians, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Furthermore, just as the second bird comes out of the water, basically from death to life, so also having died with Christ, we are new creations in him. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see Christ in the cedar wood, in the hyssop, and the scarlet thread, just as cedar is impervious to rot and very durable, so also Christ is untouched by the stain and corruption of sin. He's incredibly strong, going willfully to his own death, death on a cross. Like hyssop, Christ cleanses and heals. His blood is a spiritual antiseptic. And lastly, by the shedding of his scarlet blood, we are forgiven. Furthermore, just as the leper washed could enter the camp, so also Christ has brought us who were cut off from God back to himself. Paul told the Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we are brought back in not only to the presence of God, but into fellowship with the people of God as well. John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And lastly, we see Christ in all the sacrifices given at the end. By his death on the cross, he is our guilt offering. He satisfies the wrath of God for all the ways in which we have sinned against God's holiness. By Christ, we have been commissioned and consecrated to serve God now with our lives that we've been redeemed. He's our sin offering. He's cleansed and washed away the uncleanness of our sin. And by him, we offer the burnt offering and the grain offering of gratitude and thanksgiving to God for redeeming us back to himself. And so you see, there's not one, one word in this passage that does not have Jesus Christ all over it. Well, now with the time we have left, we want to see how all of this is pictured in baptism. Dominic, when you go under the water, 
It symbolizes your dying and being buried with Christ. The old man, the old Dominic, dead in sin, rebelling against God, is dead and buried in the tomb and gone. As Paul said to the Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Paul continues that we were buried into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life when you come out of the water, Dominic. It symbolizes being resurrected with Christ to new life. You're a new creature. You're no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. Just as water washes away dirt, so also baptism symbolizes the washing away of the stain and the guilt of your sins. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dominic, you will fall in this life as you continue to grow in holiness and fight sin. You will, we all do. And yet, though you may and will fall, Christ has washed away the guilt of all your sins, past, present, and future, and there is no condemnation, not now, not ever, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, just as the cleansed leper could enter back into fellowship with the people of God, so also baptism symbolizes your entry into the church and the people of God. As Paul told the Corinthians, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Throughout the New Testament, the church is said to be the body of Christ, who is its head. And just as we are baptized into Christ, so also we are baptized into his body, the church, and thereby able to participate in all of its sacraments. This is why I asked you not to partake of the Lord's Supper until you had been baptized. The Lord's Supper is the meal. But baptism is the door whereby you enter the house where the meal is being served. And after baptism, we will partake of the Lord's Supper for the first time together. And so, in conclusion, today is a great day of joy. Just as I spoke about the leper finally coming home, perhaps his family, his mother and father, being right outside the tabernacle, giving him a hug, that great day of restoration so also, that is a picture of what's happening today. Dominic being restored fully to God, and restored and entering into fellowship with the people of God. And all of this, all of this salvation by the blood of Christ, the forgiveness and freedom from sin, eternal life, Jesus offers this to all of you here today, free of charge, a free gift to be received by faith. God calls you to come, to come and receive freely. He gives freely to sinners. He says to sinners in the book of Isaiah, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And that's a picture of the freeness of salvation offered to sinners. 